Good morning. Um, glad to be here. Uh, this is a continuation of some of my thinking uh, by trying to account for Heidegger as teacher. So these are just some thoughts that I put together and they're in the context of Black Notebooks. So we'll see how this goes. <clears throat> professor John Rose, who is now, it's either this week or next week, he'll be prof Professor Emeritus John Rose, he's just retiring yet, of Goucher College, the Secretary Treasurer of the US-based Heidegger Circle, gave a talk on Heidegger and Nietzsche a few weeks ago at the circle where he spoke on a, particular, a number of particularly moving points. The first was that currently he was most interested in finding ways to talk to others who had not read Heidegger or Nietzsche, as many of those in attendance had, in a language that both parties would be able to understand. I can certainly relate to this challenge and to this very practical concern how to not get lost in Heideggeries while trying to communicate what I believe to be incredibly insightful and profound questions and thinking. But it was John's second point that has stuck with me and has echoed in my ears a point that is directly related to the first, that each of us that has read Heidegger and Nietzsche has been touched or transformed in some way. How is it that we have all been struck by something in our reading that we are now sometimes unable to communicate and convey to others who have not read the same things that we have read? This observation sparked resonance with many in attendance as a few senior scholars, this is at the Heidegger Circle, shared in the discussion portion how they had each attempted to come at the study of Heidegger in their own ways. Heidegger and the philosophy of science, Heidegger and technology, Heidegger and the emotions or the body or literature. My own reading of Heidegger transformed how I understand teaching and learning, both as, the, both as these activities occur within philosophical reflection and also in the very real practical way that I see and understand myself as a teacher and in my work preparing future teachers. What is interesting to me at present is that teachers, pre-service and in-service, so not yet teaching and already teaching, do not actually struggle as much to see the direct connections made by Heidegger when considering the intersection of philosophy of education and some of his phenomenological and hermeneutical thinking, as I have described it later. Here is how I framed my response to the call for this gathering speaking specifically to Heidegger, his teacher. Martin Heidegger, a remarkable philosopher who turned phenomenology upside down, was also a committed teacher for almost six decades. An extended reflection on teaching as a manner and way of inspiring further philosophical reflection remains an unattended narrative within philosophical scholarship. To be sure, in addition to our treatises and manuscripts, our livelihood as philosophers depends on our ability to inspire future philosophers via our lectures and our pedagogical conversations and our relationships and our professional capacities as teachers. How often do we allow others to explore our innermost thoughts and planning documents as we craft our thinking and our teaching? And this is one of the things I find in the Black Notebooks. 
My relationship to Heidegger's thinking is by way of educational philosophy, and this dramatically informs my hermeneutical stance. But is this a correct way to approach and think the Black Notebooks? The original title for these writings, or for this writing, these reflections, was What Can Heidegger Teach Us After the Black Notebooks? Or maybe the question is better, better phrased or better grasped as how can Heidegger teach us? Before moving on, I want to consider some biographical context that might be worthy of further reflection and consideration. This follows from Jeff Malpass's argument that the notebooks cannot stand on their own and must be read and contextualized among his other works. I present below a rough schema along the timeline of the notebooks that might be obvious to some and somewhat less obvious to others. If we take the editor's notes at face value, then the notebooks that are at least right now published in English span the years 31 to 41, and uh, it may be interesting to consider Heidegger's other professional activities ranging from the private to the public with the notebooks at that time at least reflective of a private realm. One step above those private notes, we have Heidegger's more traditionally philosophical writings, even though they were non-public at the time, uh, even if their overall tenor may be better understood as Daniela Vallega New notes, his poietic writings. Still further beyond these manuscripts, we arrive at the more public persona of Heidegger, the professor, his public lectures, lecture courses, seminars and other speeches or popular writings. This schema is rough, absolutely, and I'm collapsing other communications broadly and haphazardly into these categories. For example, letters and private conversations might best fit within, with the notebooks in the private realm, public speeches and other public essays like the, the rectoral address and the origin of the work of art. They could also be fully public, but I'm categorizing them in the middle. But for now, I'm just going to use this as a rough schema to shade in the additional context to the question of what or how Heidegger might teach us after the notebooks. The exact number and time frame of the notebooks remains murky at best. Peter Troni notes in the editor's note of GA96, the most recently published notebooks volume in English, that the notebooks number 34 or possibly 36, question mark, uh, and span more than 40 years from the early 1930s to early 1970s. In total, the notebooks will consume nine volumes of the GA. The currently published notebooks available in English include volumes 94, 95, 96, and represent 14 of the notebooks that span these 10 years, 31 to 41. And I eagerly await the translations of GA 97 and 98. If we take one step outside of this private realm, the time of the notebooks, Heidegger will also be working on a series of alternative manuscripts that Ballet Canu names his poietic writings, and these include the contributions, mindfulness, as well as the history of being. More famous essays and manuscripts will also be written in this period, including elucidations of Holderman's poetry, the origin of the work of art, age of the world picture, and Plato's concept of truth. As a public intellectual and professor, Heidegger is, as Ian Thompson notes in his review of one of this period's lecture courses, in full possession of his pedagogical powers. Heidegger is now in his third year as a full professor at Freiburg and delivers, to name only a few, the following lecture courses, and they're not in any particular order. The Essence of Truth, the Anaxander, Anaxander and Permenides lecture courses, 
lecture course logic as the question concerning the essence of language, the first few Holderland courses, uh, introduction to metaphysics, the question concerning the thing, just recently published, Schelling and human freedom, and of course the Nietzsche lectures. This period of time is also, of course, inclusive, inclusive of his time as rector, including his inaugural lecture on the self-assertion of the German university. Now, within this context, how do the notebooks occur and inform our understanding of Heidegger as a teacher? And this is the question I'm really asking myself and continue to ask myself. <clears throat> so maybe if we take a few of his statements at face value, it may be helpful. Uh, he makes a couple on his teaching and on his lecture courses. The first, what is the point of lecturing here and there since the lecture will not be understood? I cannot be the only one in this room for whom this strikes at the core of my being as a teacher. Heidegger also records meta-reflections on his lecture courses and provides us insight into how he understood the status of his teaching. Quote, my teaching activity strives for nothing other than the unobtrusiveness of steering toward what is simple and constant, end quote. And about the content of his courses. Quote, a lecture course on the Schelling or Plato is indeed what it is called, yet it is something quite other. And then the relationship of his teaching to his thinking as a whole. My lecture courses, which belong to this that is small, are all, and indeed intentionally, still only superficies, and mostly even a concealment. This holds as well as those courses which express themselves about themselves and their task. How should, and could it be said pedagogically, what the genuine volition desires? And also, quote, the preparation, the attempts, the preconstruction, all that is indicated in the lecture courses from 1927 to 1936, even though never, intentionally never, communicated directly. Finally, it is false, excuse me, it is easy and false to take my interpretations as historiology. They are carried out everywhere, especially in the lecture courses, with the intention of saying the unsaid. This looks as if the interpretation is a view that is supposed to be attributed to the thinkers. In each case, the interpretation is an over-interpretation, for it goes beyond the limits of what lies there. Heidegger also takes aim at the university and education writ large, no doubt informed by his experience as rector, but also from his own classroom, on the difference between education and schooling, and he is not the first, of course, to make this observation, quote, education, to displace humans into the sphere of the influence of what is great, schooling, to make those who can count skillful in what is small and calculable, quote, Another quote, education is now, in the age of technology, tasked with putting out a new type of human being, just as business enterprises bring out a new type of motorcycle. And this educational business even now enlists the Greeks. But still, how can Heidegger teach us after the notebooks? I find Heidegger in the notebooks, as in the poetic writings, experimenting with language pushing the boundaries of sense and meaning, stretching, twisting, and wringing free concealments while constantly bumping into conceptual 
or linguistic limits. No doubt, some might counter my last sentence with reservations about my own use of language to know what I see Heidegger describing or uncovering, disclosing, unconcealing. Felegenu recommends that the poietic readings be not read as logical statements or propositions, one after the other, as setting up some sort of system, but rather as an experiment in attunements of thinking. She urges the reader to these texts to approach them carefully and engage with the words and levels at this level of attunement. Taking her suggestion, I reflect the same with the entries in the notebooks. I find frustration, uneasiness, and I might say angst in the notebooks. These ideas and notes are not proclamations, but expressions of, at times, obsession and exasperation. There are wonderfully obtuse accounts of revisionist history and genuine insights into Heidegger's lived context. They are indicative of the human, all too human. But again, what are we to do? How or what are we to learn after the notebooks? The how might refer to the manner or way by which we might learn or be taught, but it can also be heard as a declarative. How can Heidegger teach us? This is my favorite question from colleagues who only read headlines. How on earth, why on earth would you look at Heidegger to show us how to teach? Especially now, after the notebooks. <clears throat> this tonal shift in the question might be best addressed by Adam Knowles' recent text on the politics of silence and Heidegger in the notebooks. Or, as we heard yesterday from Professor Babbage, we can consider the publishing and editorial hermeneutics that inform the context of the notebooks. I find this argument increasingly compelling and fascinating. Lawrence Paul Hemming argues that the notebooks were always already in the background, continuing the analysis that was begun in Being in Time. But if I jump back into the notebooks and I look at them specifically as a teacher, I actually find specific advice written to me uh, of how to be a teacher. Teachers, this is quoting, teachers, whoever wants to teach must be able to learn how, one, to come to an ever deeper knowledge of the essential, two, to be silent in face of that which is properly to be taught, and three, to preserve the gentle superiority of the exemplar and not let oneself slip into a false camaraderie. And a final reference regarding students and teachers to note, a bit of a longer quote. Pupils always understand their teacher only historiologically. He is for them precisely still the present, yet already the passing in the past that they follow up. In order to grasp the teacher historically, one must be a non-pupil. Non-pupils are, to be sure, also all those who have never gone through school and therefore even lack the presuppositions for understanding merely historiologically what the teacher says. The true non-pupil is the one who is not merely a pupil, but one who would himself, by himself, be an essential teacher. Yet such are rare. And therefore a philosophy, for example, is creatively grasped at the earliest 100 years after it arises. We Germans are now precisely beginning to prepare ourselves to grasp Leibniz 
end quote. So we, in 2019, are now 100 years after Heidegger first started teaching. He taught in the first, in the uh, war emergency semester in 1919, and that's generally agreed that that's when his teaching career starts. He taught a little bit before, but that's when people say that's when he begins as a private docent, as an assistant professor. So if we're 100 years later, what might we learn? What can we gain from studying that particular lecture course? Put differently, what does Heidegger teach his students, and therefore us now, his reader, in this earliest course? Thanks to the scholarship of Ted Kiesel, quite a lot, including a thorough analysis of the development of Heidegger's method of formal indication. While formal indication as a way of doing philosophy is not named as such until the winter semester, the term after, uh, in that lecture course, which is Basic Problems of Phenomenology, not to be confused with later one, uh, Kiesel has published what he terms the War Emergency Semester Schema, which shows the power of formality in reflexive categories to gain access to the pre-theoretical, these are Ted's words, pre-worldly primal something of our individual facticity. Gaining this kind of access to the facticity of everyday lived experience became the challenge for the remainder of Heidegger's life. Kiesel summarizes, quote, it all began in the war emergency semester of 1919, in the upshot of the effort to go all out after the factic by finding a method to approach it. The breakthrough to the topic is a double play of matter and method, what and how, drawn to a point where they are one and the same, a hermeneutics of facticity, end quote. I think the greatest lesson that I have ever learned from my own encounter with Heidegger is the ability to ask questions. And this, I also have to give a nod and thanks to Professor Babbage as well, who recently, in a contribution to the Encyclopedia for Philosophy of Education, pointed this out and made this very, very clear. But it is also, <clears throat> as she makes clear, uh, a case that has been true ever since uh, even other essays, including the question concerning technology, the importance of asking questions. And not just any questions, but questions that strike at the heart of the presuppositions that I and we take for granted. By the way, by way of starting to land this plane, for example, I want to briefly examine our concept of culture. Culture, at least as cultural politics, receives quite a bit of critique throughout the notebooks. I have also wondered about our, that is, human beings' fascination with this concept of culture. At a SPEP conference, the Society for Phenomenology and Existential Philosophy over in the States, at a SPEP conference over a decade ago, I listened to a paper given by a new Heidegger scholar who argued that if only Heidegger had developed an account or a theory of culture, we might actually be able to do something with his philosophy. <laughs> <clears throat> Fortunately, I had read enough Heidegger to be dangerous and knew that this argument missed the core of his thinking. But it also opened up a space for a genuine questioning, I think. And this is yet another teaching of Heidegger for me. We have not always possessed or been possessed by this concept of culture. Yet, holding fast to an aletheic interpretation 
That which is unconcealed or illuminated by the concept and word culture also already conceals. We forget this. What did we think of before we had culture? To be sure, we've gained an entire domain of thinking along this trajectory, informed by this idea, where now we can speak of the culture wars and critiques of assimilation and acculturation relevant right now to decolonialist, decolonialist scholarship or decolonialism. Within education, jump back to my own domain, within, within education there is now the old-fashioned multicultural education and the new and improved culturally responsive pedagogy. Culture is now a catch-all. It means quite a lot. As an example, I'm part of a group of colleagues who are drafting a curriculum for a Master's of Teaching program. And these future teachers will then go and teach in inner city Philadelphia. We're a bit of a way, about an hour away from Philadelphia. A core component of the program is a course entitled Culturally Relevant Pedagogy. Because the future teachers, it is argued, will need to be, and I agree, will need to be enculturated to a context different from their own cultural backgrounds. The thrust of and intentionality behind this notion is noble and is evidence of the power of the concept of culture. But what is lost and hidden, covered over or concealed within culture? There could be a sense that culture is divisive, at least in its more recent sense. I have my culture, you have yours. The United States and Canada, for example, while they share a continent, a large border, and for the most part language, each have different cultures. Within education, multicultural education became, at best, a celebration of elements of a particular culture and, at worst, a very real and lived experience of negative and some positive stereotypes of the other. For Mexico Day, it was tacos and sombreros, as an example. No matter, because we are hopeful that culturally relevant pedagogy will help address these missteps. What do we do with this? Revert back to pre-culture days? Get rid of the word? Come up with a new concept? Or redefine and transform the meaning? I don't know the answer. But it gives me something to think about. It gives me a lot to think about. I do know that names and naming are important. This is what John Rose was highlighting in his talk a, a few weeks ago at the Heidegger Circle in Rochester. Our language is important. And not to be too flippant or obtuse, but as an example, we call these notebooks the black notebooks because of the color of the covers. But I'm left wondering if there would be as much general public interest if these texts and their contents were actually written in striped notebooks <laughs> or polka-dotted notebooks. Hello Say again? Hello Kitty. Yeah, hello Kitty. <laughs> after the polka-dotted notebooks just doesn't have the same kind of ring to it, or after the hello Kitty just doesn't have the same ring to it, the words and the naming matters. As a, and I'll say this and then shut up. 
Um, <clears throat> so I mentioned that this is uh, a further uh, example of my own trying to think through Heidegger as a teacher and bring Heidegger into greater dialogue with educational <clears throat> philosophy and teacher ed. Um, this, is, this involves putting together uh, a text, another a new book. If you're aware of this subject area, there was one uh, edited by Michael Peters about 20 or so years ago, and I'm coming back in that wake and pulling together all, uh, as many scholars as I can, to write on this topic and on this idea. And I've been doing some, obviously, as no one told me it would be so hard to be an editor of a book, um, putting together all of my ideas and thoughts and you know, the introduction and whatnot. And so I, I've just been writing this, and I want to mention this as my closing, because part of this work is also a love letter to my teachers, my actual real physical teachers, and also those who I read and who teach me through, their, through my reading. Um, and that's been one of the greatest joys of doing this project, even though it is a ton of emails, is getting to have, have direct contact and be able to express my gratitude to my teachers. So, this is, I'll say this as part of my introduction, but actually conclusion, conclusion for this. Teaching Heidegger, which is the name of the book, by the way, is about so much more than simply a collection of scholarly writing and thinking at the intersection of Heidegger and the practice, profession, philosophical exploration of teaching, although it is these things as well. It is also a celebration and an extended note of thanks and gratitude to my many teachers. In some cases, the authors in this book have taught me through their own writings and presentations. In others, I have only admired their work from afar. Still others have taught me as a result of their contributing to this project, and I and the book are better for it. A core thread of what I wanted to accomplish in this collection was this very recognition that we are all a part of an academic family, or to borrow from somewhere, we stand on the shoulders of giants. In the same way we say thank you to our parents for raising us, putting up with us, this text and my thinking in this matter is a thank you to all those who have shown me the way, walked the path before, and opened up new paths for thinking and discovery. I am drawn into deeper reflection, study, and meditative thinking as a result. And for that, I am grateful. That's it. Thank you.